One, two, three, four. In this podcast, you will be here. Knights of Vader, Knights of Vader. Includes, but is not led to. Talk of Star Wars, not Reagan's. We can't truly prepare for the jump that follows this song. But hey, we give it a try. So here's the Knights of they are divided For equal, sequel, hate, and love they fight I know that we are just musicians hired And their time is up So here's the Knights of Vader Impressive Most impressive A big thank you to Anspiriority Complex for providing our new theme song It is November 14th, 2018 And we're talking David Lynch's Revenge of the Jedi my name is Zach Weber, and tonight I am joined by the president of the Amelia Clark Fan Club Association, Rob. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me back, I should say. <laughs> well, we couldn't chase him away after the Dia- Dianetics episode. Uh, the Scientology people did not sue us, so we are happy to have Rob back. Um, I am honored time- to be back, I should say. I'm, I'm very much honored uh, I, I think it's been established. I'm sorry if I'm jumping in too much, Zach, but uh, I think it's been established. None of the other Knights of Vader no longer want to talk to me. Every time they they hear I'm coming on, they uh, apparently flee the scene. But thankfully, Zach is still willing to put me in episodes. <laughs> Thank you. Zach. Yes. <laughs> can't get rid of Rob. Can't get rid of that. Uh, can't get enough of him on cinemati, so we dump him into the Knights of Vader pool. Mm-hmm. So. Nothing bad can come of this, right, folks? As he stares into the camera, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. There's Uh, something I want to talk about beforehand. Specifically, maybe two things I want to talk about before we get into the topic of this episode. An inferiority complex. We have released new music. I am so upset Zach has not mentioned this. Zach should be just spewing forth all mention of this pot as po- uh, much mention of this as possible. Uh, Zach, have you heard the new single cups on cockroaches? It's a great track. You should check it out. And we are very surprised and excited to say that our second album, semi perfect yet sublime is coming out December 4th. Zach's going to put all the necessary links in the show notes. That's your ad revenue right there. <laughs> Wow, the check that says 0.00. Indeed. And in superiority Great band. The only band that is, uh, I think, an official supporter of Knights of Vader. Oh, yes. So, anyway, though. So, this week, we are talking about something, actually, I we've been gestating as an idea for a while now. Before there were Cinemodies, before we even had the idea for Cinemodies, I had pitched this idea of an episode to Rob... Back when he makes one of his uh, once uh, eighteen month period episode returns to where we live, or at least where I currently live, uh, I pitched my idea to him. I think Zach is trying to talk about my my pilgrimage back home. <laughs> I, I'd say I wouldn't say pilgrimage. I'd say more uh, forced return is the correct terminology. Mm, really, really? Yeah, that's the vibe I get. I mean, 
Okay, maybe well, maybe we'll talk about that, but I see it as a pilgrimage. But continue, Zach. I'm sorry. <laughs> so when Rob came back last time, I pitched him this idea, and he was intrigued by it. For months, even before Cinemodis, we kind of tried to figure out where this would fit into the, the overall scope of Knights of Vader, considering this is not a topic that's really uh, current events heavy. In the mm-hmm. last few weeks of Knights of Vader, I've had been talking to Zenger and Force Ghost Jim. We were this close to having Force Ghost Jim on this episode, folks. We really had him there, but unfortunately, uh, the Force. I'm sorry. Ghost- I'm sorry. I ran him away. I'm sorry. Yes, the Force Ghost was this close to coming on, but unfortunately, the Force Ghost has a day job, and we just couldn't pull him away from it. I think okay. he likes to. I think he's haunting someone on one of those ghost hunting shows, but he that's takes the, away his blue aura. That's the official stance you're taking. It's not that I ran them away after the solo review episode. Well, no, you. Well, you ran Zenger away after that, but okay, uh, Jim. We don't know. Jim, Jim. Jim. The Force Ghost is much more forgiving than Zenger is. Okay. Okay. Well. Yeah. Well. Okay. Okay. So with that being said, in the last few weeks, we've kind of realized that uh, going through our catalog of episodes, at this point I think we're up to like 80-something, which is more than I ever thought we'd get to. We realized that we don't have a lot of episodes that talk about the original trilogy. We have a lot of speculation episodes. We have a lot of current events episodes that are, oh boy, shockingly outdated. So (laughs) we figured now more than any other time, considering that it's also the 35th anniversary of Return of the Jedi... You, you you wouldn't really know that considering uh, the Star Wars fan base. So it's funny, Star Wars doesn't really celebrate anniversaries to end in five. It seems to be only 10, 20, 30, 40 year anniversaries. Okay. 25th anniversaries. Apparently the silver anniversary can go sit on sit on a log. Wait, <laughs> 20, 25 is silver, right? I believe so. So, whatever. Someone fact check that. Pork died, let me know in the comments down below. Dun, dun, uh, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> wrong wrong music cue. Oh, we'll have to fix oh, that that's the, always the right music cue. <laughs> so we are talking about David Lynch's Revenge of the Jedi. But I would imagine a lot of you are probably saying, A, what is Revenge of the Jedi? And two, what is David Lynch? Yes. And, and Rob is an expert at least on one of these, maybe even two of them. So I'm going to let him describe about, first of all, who is David Lynch? So, Zach, I'm glad that you are asking me these questions. And I feel it is something that we need to talk about, or at least I should bring up prior to our discussion, as we said already about David Lynch's Revenge of the Jedi. This is the first time I have watched a Star Wars movie. I rewatched Return of the Jedi, as it is prior to this viewing. This was the first Star Wars movie I watched since Solo, which is what I was on here also to discuss way back when. I I want to bring up something, Zach. I stated it on this podcast before. My favorite Star Wars movie is Return of the Jedi. When I watched it again, I think it solidified the fact that it is not only my favorite Star Wars movie, but maybe one of my favorite movies ever. I love Return of the Jedi. I just wanted to say... This discussion, this kind of David Lynch's Return of the Jedi, you know, what we could have been, it's going to be great because this is something that I appreciate to a grand extent. The question I have for you, I think, is does that make me a bad Star Wars fan? (laughs) It's funny. There's not a lot of people who say Return of the Jedi is their favorite film. So it definitely puts you in a very unique class of uh, 
Star Wars enthusiasts. So I think that I I feel that I've even heard maybe from this podcast or other Star Wars sources that it's become kind of a recent fad to dislike Return of the Jedi. Is that fair to say? Yes. Oddly enough, Return of the Jedi now is slipping lower and lower in the rankings of Star Wars films. Can you explain to me why that is, maybe? Because this film is awesome to me. I, obviously, most of these people that are ranking these films in this particular order are the people that... that uh, A lot of... I don't know. I really... I don't have a firm idea. Maybe... I think it's going to be in the... Well, this is a little peek behind the curtain, folks. The, uh, when you're hearing this, we had an episode before this titled Defending Return of the Jedi. So maybe Ooh. we delved into it there. I don't know. That episode's <laughs> being recorded tomorrow, so I can have Thanksgiving in peace. <laughs> uh, uh, with that being said, I... I don't know. I don't have a firm. I don't have a firm grasp on why people dislike Return of the Jedi. I think a lot of it's the Ewok thing. I think that's it's that was it's kind of like how Jar Jar became the official punching bag of the Phantom Menace. Okay, and I think Ewoks kind of became that. I do see in a way like, as rewatching Return of the Jedi for this. I do see why a lot of people don't like it compared to the first two. I think it's the weakest of the original trilogy because mm. after they rescue Han Solo. And they, and they end up on Endor, I feel a lot of steam is lost in the film. The characters are kind of just there. Han Solo has really nothing to do. I, I think it would be a little bit more interesting if they made Princess Leia like in charge of the Endor mission. Luke Luke's just uh, a very passive character in this. He's like, oh, I'm just going to turn, turn myself into the Imperials. It's like, well, well, why are you turning yourself into, into the Imperials? Well, I just have to. I have to confront Vader. Well, why do you have to confront Vader? Well, because Obi-Wan Yoda told me to. Well, okay. Like, it feels like, even though this is the end of the Empire, mm -hmm. I think as everything in this movie, the only real dramatic stakes that are felt are during the the battle above Endor, during, the I guess, the, the assault on the second Death Star. Okay. I think that's the only place where you really feel the stakes of what's, about, what's going on during all this. Mm -hmm. I think, and we'll get into this when we start delving into the David Lynch, Richard Marquand element of who's get on Lucas's shortlist to direct this back in the early eighties. Mm -hmm. But I get the feeling that it's the same sort of problems that dog the prequels, where the Lucas was not concerned with the character development and the the actions of the characters. That's that's the vibe I get from this. I feel this is kind of like a a predecessor to what. The Phantom Menace would become because it's funny. You look at this film compared to the Phantom Menace, and it has that because uh, what kind of happened in Star Wars in general, where you have uh, Star Wars: A New Hope, where the climax is essentially just one setting. It's a Death mm -hmm. Star. Yeah. In Empire, you have the duel in Cloud City, in Princess Leia, Chewbacca, and Lando trying to escape, or rescue Han, then escaping. And then for Jedi, you have Luke, you have Han and Leia, and then you have Lando. You have that all those, all those three battles going on at once. Then for Phantom Menace, you have the duel with Darth Maul, Anakin, the Trade Federation control ship, Padme, and the Gungans. You have four different battles going on at once. That's too and many. That's, that's too well, many. Matter, matter of preference, I like Phantom Menace. I, I will defend that film. Four is too many. Four is too many. Well, and to be I honest, think, I, I do like Phantom Menace, I should say. Rob, I'm pretty sure Rob's favorite character is Sebulba. Well, I mean, you Th know. Does Rob maybe, even maybe know not, who Sebulba is? I mean, is. favorite favorite, and most relatable are a little different, I would say, right? <laughs> well, sure. Uh, he does walk on his hind legs, so I, I guess that's fair. 
But uh, no, I think the reason why a lot of these people don't like Jedi is that it does have a, it feels like in a filmmaking way a lot in common with Phantom Menace. Okay, and I think, but again, I don't think a lot of these man babies who hate Star Wars yet claim to love it. I've never understood a fan base that again this I guess is one of the ultimate fulcrums of Star Wars now, mm -hmm. in that it's a fan base that claims to love Star Wars yet does everything in its power to do it, to try to destroy it. Sure. Yeah, I think that's kind of what it is, is that in a very subconscious way, it's the the concept of, oh, you started to lose a lot of the the depth of these characters, and the spectacle was being prioritized over the characters. Okay, okay, that's fair. Is there a reason why you like this movie, Rob? Why is this why is this film speak to you? Honestly, I think the answer is probably nostalgia. Because oh. I remember when I was a little kid, for some reason, you know, when I was young, like single digits young, and, you know, my parents were like, yeah, watch Star Wars. I watched the original trilogy, and I love the original trilogy, but this movie stuck out to me because of probably the first half hour of it, Jabba's Palace. The diversity of the characters in the background, the kind of the weirdness of just what that was, you know? And, but at the same time, I think that this whole movie works. I love the Ewoks. I love little creatures in the woods, that, you know, on the planet that they have to be on this mission for. I love kind of, you know, every aspect about it. Yeah, I remember when I was younger, when I was first, like, obviously I was introduced with Star Wars. I was introduced to Star Wars through The Phantom Menace. So that was always <laughs> my first Star Wars film. But when I was growing up, the of the original trilogy, Jedi was always my favorite. I found Empire boring. I like I like I like Star Wars. I like the first one, but um, I always kind of of the original trilogy, I gravitate toward uh, Jedi. And then over time, I I've come to appreciate all of them, but I definitely see the flaws in Jedi more than the other two. Yeah, I have to say, when I rewatched uh, Return of the Jedi for this podcast recording. Um, uh, there were some things I was like, eh, really? Like, that's what they did? <laughs> yeah, like I said, Je Jedi is a weird film uh, for many reasons. It's but... still my favorite Star Wars film, though. I'm not going back on that. Well, let's rephrase it that way. It's Rob's favorite Star Wars film that doesn't feature Amelia Clark. <laughs> I don't think there is a favorite Star Wars film with Amelia Clark for me. He's, he's lying, folks. He's playing hard to get with her. But anyway, though, so Rob, I know I asked this question about three hours ago. Yes, but yes. Let's get back to the to the real thing we're discussing. The titular right? topic, uh, David Lynch's Revenge of the Jedi. So, Rob, would you care to elaborate who filmmaker David Lynch is? David Lynch. David Lynch, I would say, is someone who has embraced not only the absurd, but the surreal. He is someone who can take a scene and drag it out as long or as short as he needs to, but make it as unnerving and skin-crawling as possible. If you've never heard of David Lynch, I strongly suggest you go watch movies such as Mulholland Drive. I think you should look up Rabbits. I think that just in and of itself, of course, Rabbits is included in Inland Empire. If you find Rabbits by its own little, you know, 50-minute chunk, that would be great as well. Um, 
Things like his short stories or his TV shows, the first season of Twin Peaks, the third season of Twin Peaks. David Lynch is somebody who can convey emotion that will make you honestly feel something. That's the best way I can describe him. Because when I think about media that I love and remember, I think about catharsis, things that have drawn emotion from me. And David Lynch is one of the only directors that have ever done that successfully. Does that sum him up fairly well? I think it does. I, I think uh, to do a little bit more uh, down-to-earth is that David Lynch is a, a weird-ass filmmaker, uh, <laughs> extre- extremely talented. You have, to ha- you have to like that sort of filmmaking. You can't just delve into the deep end with David Lynch, unlike yes. what Rob and I did. Rob and I delved right into the deep end with him because uh, I'm not sure if anybody knows who's listening to this. But Rob and I went to high school together. There, if you've listened to Cinemodities, <laughs> well, to be fair, Rod's memories of high school are just a blur. So every time I mention that, he's shocked to know that we spent at least three years together, maybe more. <laughs> but Rob and I delved into the deep end with David Lynch. Anybody out there that's seen Eraserhead? It's funny. Eraserhead's not as much as a a obscure film as it once was. Mm-hmm. It's funny when Rob and I were in high school, we had to kind of go tracking down a copy of Eraserhead. Nowadays, I think it's widely available. I think Hulu. It's it's not this weird film that's really out like in the the nether world of filmmaking. Yeah. It's really it, it's there. It's accessible to pretty much anybody who wants to go looking for it. No, but like Rob said, probably some of the best David Lynch films, and probably to to, to whet your appetite for David Lynch and see if you like him and want some more, is probably Blue Velvet. If you like oh, Blue Velvet, yeah. you sh- it's it's kind of like oh that's the that's kind of the the first step. It's like, oh, if you like that movie, then move on to a little bit more of the intermediate ones like oh, what would be intermediate for David Lynch? I guess Mulholland Drive would be would be intermediate. Mulholland Drive, Rabbits, maybe some of his short films, um, maybe things like Wild at Heart. Yeah, I still haven't seen Wild at Heart, so I, I can't Really? Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't want burn. Th- like, why well, like a filmmaker? I don't like burning through their we catalog. We need to do a bonus episode of of whatever podcast we're doing on <laughs> on Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart is a great movie. That's what Nicholas Nicholas Cage smokes two cigarettes at one point. It's great. Yes, and it also has <laughs> Vice Admiral Haldo in it. Mm-hmm. But no Haldo maneuver. So bonus points are taken away. I'd say Lost Highways Intermediate. And then when you start getting into like the advanced is when you get like to Mulholland Drive and the, the, the grand poobah of them all is Eraserhead. I think once once you've braced yourself for Eraserhead, you can kind of handle anything. But no, you, you should not just delve into the deep end with Eraserhead like Rob and I did. Chances are you'll get a concussion and, and drown in the pool. <laughs> getting to the whole point with David Lynch. David Lynch is a very has a, a unique vision. David Lynch isn't infallible. It's not like everything he's touched is turns to gold. He's definitely made some stinkers. Inland Empire. Dude. Oh, oh, oh. Inland yeah, Empire. Stink. That's questionable. No, no. In- Inland Empire is a mess. I don't care anybody says. If you, if, folks, if you ever want to see what schizophrenia on st- celluloid feels like, but that's there why you it's go. amazing. No, it's not. It, it's it's. I give I give everybody credit for making that movie. Yet, as a finished product, it is more or less unwatchable. Okay, we are about to insert. 15 minutes of Laura Dern screaming right here. (laughs) 
That's why Inland Empire is amazing. Yeah, so you get to see 15 minutes of Vice Admiral Haldo screaming. <laughs> when David Lynch was considered for Revenge of the Jedi, which everybody knows was the original title of Return of the Jedi, until just weeks before it was supposed to go out in the theaters, was that David Lynch had a handful of actors, and I'm actually kind of curious what kind of research Rob did for this, because I think people should know that if you do go diving for information on what David Lynch's Revenge of the Jedi will look like, you are not going to find a lot of information. There's maybe one or two articles about it. There's about maybe two YouTube videos and a couple of offhand references in different Star Wars books and David Lynch biographies scattered to different corners of the wind. And for the record, I want everybody to know, it wasn't like David, this is not like a Gareth Edwards or a Lord and Miller where David Lynch was like signed on, worked on this for like days, weeks, months, years. This was something according and Rob, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. David Lynch, and it's actually it can be argued whether how much enthusiasm David Lynch actually had for this project, mm-hmm. because there's actually conflicting reports as to whether he ever even wanted to do this in the first place. Yeah, I would say that's what my research found, that, you know, this is not something that uh, it, it began in any sense of the word. It was, according to what I looked up, it was basically George Lucas confronted David Lynch and said, hey, would you like to direct the third, you know, Star Wars movie at the time? And David Lynch said no. That's where I'm going to disagree. Because oh, okay. So, okay. That 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 is what I found. That's oh no, no, no. Rob is not find. wrong. That's 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 the official narrative on this mm-hmm. because because well, there's there's a it's kind of David Lynch's bite sized remark on this. It's kind of like he he's done it a couple times. It will come up in conversation. He'll be at some oh god screening of some movie, whether it be his or another filmmaker's, and it'll be come up as a topic like, oh, were you in the running for like directing? Return of the Jedi, and he has this really cute little antidote, he says. We'll play it here. Did you turn down George Lucas for directing Star Wars Return of the Jedi? I was asked uh, by George uh, to uh, come up to see him and talk to him about directing, which would, would be the third Star Wars. And I had next door to zero interest but I always admired George you know George is a guy that does what he loves and I do what I love the difference is what George loves makes hundreds of billions of dollars (laughs) so I thought I should go up and at least visit with him and it was incredible I had to go to this building in LA first and get a special credit card and I had to get a special keys and a letter came and a map and um, then I went into the airport and I flew up and then they had a rental car all ready for me and this uh, keys and you know everything was set and I was to drive to this place and I came into an office and there was George and he, he talked with me for a little bit and then he said I want to show you something Now, right about in this time, I started getting a little bit of a headache. Just, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Okay. So, he took me upstairs, and he showed me these things called Wookiees. 
and now this headache is getting, you know, getting stronger. <laughs> and he showed me many animals and different things. Then he took me for a ride in his Ferrari for a lunch. And George is uh, kind of short, so he was, his seat was way back and he was almost laying down in the car. We were flying through this little town up in Northern California. We went to a restaurant, not that I don't like salad, but that's all they had was, was salad. <laughs> <laughs> then I got a really, uh, an almost like a migraine headache. And I could hardly wait to get to home. And I, even before I got home, I kind of crawled into a phone booth and phoned my agent. I said, there's no way, I know no way I can do this. He said, David, 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 calm down. You don't have to do this. And um, so George, bless his heart, I told him on the phone the next day that he should direct it. It's his film. He invented everything about it. But he doesn't really love directing. And so someone else did direct that film, but um, I, did, I called my lawyer and told him that I wasn't gonna do it, and he said, you just lost, I don't know how many millions of dollars, <laughs> but it's okay. He says all the, not wanna say nasty, but it's, 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 it's a cute little antidote about how far removed from the Hollywood system Lynch is and just how mm -hmm. things are run. Mm -hmm. And but in I have uh, as as the Star Wars aficionado as I am I have J W Rinsler's The Making of Return of the Jedi which is the coffee table book which is considered well his trio of books on the original trilogy are considered the definitive takes on the making of the original trilogy okay and I think it's really interesting that. In the, it's funny because I, I read the same things Rob read. I've watched the video, it's the same one you just heard, where David Lynch says he got a migraine, he won no parts of this. But in this book, it's actually if anybody has the 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 making of Return of the Jedi book, it's on page forty, and it's in a <laughs> quote. It says, "After Marquand departed, that being Richard Marquand, the actual director." Of Return of the Jedi, who would turn out to be the actual director of Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. Lucas was true to his word and decided, quote, George called me up Saturday and said, I want to go with David, says Kazajan, who was the producer of Return of the Jedi. Quote, so I called David Lynch and he was thrilled, but within three days he declined. And there's a bunch of stuff about the Director's Guild and stuff, which I, I won't get into because that's a topic for another day. But that's basically that's the thing I think is interesting, the fact that probably David Lynch signed on to this and then got cold feet in the subsequent days. Okay. That's that's the vibe I get because one thing as I was uh, kind of pondering on this episode was trying to think about where David Lynch was in his career mm -hmm. when this was all being decided. Because again, David Lynch is a world-renowned filmmaker, but he does not have a lot of films to his name. He has maybe, what, Rob, 10, 10 to a dozen yeah, it's, yeah, ten probably I would say is the upper bound. Yeah, it's it's not he doesn't have a long filmography. So when he was approached by Jorge Lucas to direct this, he only had two films. He had Eraserhead, which was a barely a midnight movie, kind of just on yeah. the fringes of that. <laughs> and he had The Elephant Man, which he made for Mel Brooks, mm -hmm. which was a critical and commercial hit. Yeah. It was a movie where you could take a 
a hideous disformed man and I'm sorry, not disformed, deformed man, and you made him a sympathetic hero. Yeah. And that and that took a lot. And the fact that it, that resonated with people across the board was one of those things where okay, Lucas really I I, I think it's also a story too that Lucas really loved the racer head. I, I think that's fascinating that apparently Lucas learned of a racer head from Stanley Kubrick Ooh. during the making of Empire Strikes Back. Apparently Kubrick and uh, Lucas were both in London during the, the makings of, I think Kubrick was there for The Shining and Lucas was there for Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. And whatever it was, they rubbed shoulders. And I think Kubrick invited like some of the, the crew or I guess the producers behind Empire to like, oh, come back to my house and we'll watch Eraserhead. <laughs> and that, that that's like one of those moments in like film history where you love, if it actually did happen that way, you'd love to be a fly on the wall. Stanley Kubrick showing yeah. George Lucas a racer head for the first time. Yeah, that would be, that's not just a moment in film history. That's a moment in human history that I'd love to be a member of. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's one of those fun moments. And whether it happened or not, who knows, or if it even occurred the way that whoever laid it out. But I yeah. think. And, but the thing that's so weird, though, is that in the this article that I found, I'm not sure if Rob found the same one, but the article is titled, written by Adam Golaski, and it's titled, On David Lynch's Revenge of the Jedi. Okay. Did you find this article, Rob? I think so. I I don't have it pulled up or anything, but well, I, th- I think I did skim it, at least. All right, because it shouldn't be too surprising, because there are only a handful of articles. If anybody does research on this topic, you are going to come into the same half a dozen sources. But when, when Jorge Lucas was trying to have a short list of directors, mm-hmm. uh, he had a couple names on the list, most of which shouldn't be surprising. He had names like Richard Donner, behind the first Superman film, mm-hmm. John Carpenter, Terry Gilliam, Dan- mm-hmm. David Cronenberg, Richard, uh, Richard Lester, and John Borman. Obviously, I think everybody knows Richard Donner from, from Superman, The yep. Omen. Uh, especially, and it's kind of they talk about the fact that Lucas had he had basically he was he was intrigued by all these filmmakers. I think David Cronenberg was another one that came really close from from my understanding of of Star Wars history. Mm-hmm. Cronenberg was kind of I guess in the the, the short list before it came down to Marquand and David Lynch. Okay. For the record, we don't know what this is. It, it, Lucas has not given. I don't think Lucas has ever given an official interview on this. I, I I could not find anything where Lucas said, "Oh, I decided this." It seems to be secondhand information from David Lynch or producer Howard. Yeah. Rob, you not pronounce this Howard Kazajan? 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 Cow. I don't know. I don't have a. Uh, I don't have the name right in front of me. All right, folks. Uh, but you get our drift. He's in. If you've seen the Empire Dreams documentary. He's in there toward the, the, the chapters on Return of the Jedi. Uh, that's basically, the, those are the only two people that give us information. George Lucas has never commented on it, or at least not in my research I could find. So it's, I, what I find the most interesting about this was he decided between David Lynch, who's a definition of an auteur, mm-hmm. someone who has a vision yeah. and does everything within their power to bring that vision to fruition, and Richard Marquand, who's essentially, and nothing against Richard Marquand, who would become George Lucas's Brett Ratner. <laughs> in that Marquand essentially did whatever Lucas told him to do. In that if Lucas told Marquand to jump, Marquand responded with how high. Mm-hmm. 
And I find that so weird that Lucas essentially wanted a shell, yet he boiled his choices down to a shell in the polar opposite of a shell. Yeah. And I can't figure that out. I, I, I would have no idea either. It's just uh, maybe the way the movie industry goes? I don't even know if it's that. I know in the interview that we just, we played earlier, not interview, but when David Lynch is talking, it's weird <laughs> in that it's a very disparaging take on Lucas. Okay. I know, especially during the prequel era, I can't attest to what Lucas' image was during the original trilogy days, but I know in the, the special edition to current era, we all kind of think of George Lucas as this schlub wearing plaid, this, mm-hmm. this plaid shirt, jean wearing schlub. Who's kind of like an everyman that somehow made a billion dollar fortune off off a movie series? Sure, and I don't think that's an image that we think of of George Lucas as this like Hollywood mogul that drinks his own Kool Aid. Okay, okay. And I think that's I think that's one of the more interesting parts of this story is that Luke, Lucas, I guess, has done another thing. I guess is the storyteller that he is has spun his own idea or narrative about his life that a lot of us don't know that maybe isn't the real reflection of who he is yeah that could be the case but getting back to revenge of the jedi basically what it seems like was if lynch wasn't interested he wouldn't have taken the meeting i know at one point he makes a comment saying like oh i'm a filmmaker that likes to make things and Lucas is a filmmaker who likes mm-hmm. to make like like original, authentic things. He's like, oh, I had to take the meeting for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know why Lynch would have gone that far. Just just basically to say no. I guess it's just the idea of like, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. But in the in the the J W Rinsler book, they mention that a couple of days after Lynch turned down the Jedi offer. He signed on to Dino De Laurentiis's Dune. Mm, that was his space epic. Yes, and I think what it probably came down to is that Lynch probably realized that he probably have a lot more creative freedom on that than okay. he would on a uh, a Star. He probably read the, again. David Lynch is a smart man. He's not stupid. He knows how to read the tea leaves. And he probably saw, oh crap, Lucas is going to micromanage me with this. Uh. And I think, and it's mentioned in the article, it's mentioned in most of the articles that you read on this, that could there really have been a David Lynch's, a David Lynch Star Wars film that felt like it had David Lynch's seal of approval on it? <laughs> well, yeah. He, yeah, that's the question. I think it would, if, if this film ever did get made, and we'll delve into that a little bit more into specific details as we kind of imagine what this movie would have mm-hmm. been like. Mm-hmm. But. I think best case scenario, David Lynch would have been like a a steward of the Star Wars franchise as opposed to putting his own spin on it. Okay, okay. And you think that's kind of something that he uh, was unapproving of and maybe what drove him away? I think so, because I think after after Eraserhead and Elephant Man, I think he – it's like any filmmaker. They they do want that that huge success. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think uh, he felt that Star Wars would have definitely granted him that, but yeah. maybe at the same time, kind of what we're seeing with Ryan Johnson. I think maybe Ryan Johnson is the closest thing we I, could have ever, like, not in the sense of like 
what a David Lynch Star Wars film would look like, but in the sense of having an auteur make a Star Wars film sure. with their vision at the forefront as opposed to the uh, corporate interest. Mm-hmm. Again, who knows? Like I said, we, we've debated this for, for, for hours now about how much of Last Jedi is Ryan Johnson versus the studio. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who originally came up with those ideas versus who had the final say, we'll never know. But yeah. I do think that Ryan Johnson's probably the only auteur to direct a Star Wars film outside of maybe Lucas with the very first one. Okay, okay. Because I think if you look at Irving Kirshner's work, I don't think Irving Kirshner's an auteur in the sense of I don't think he has his own signature and style. I don't think you can look at Irving Kirshner's filmography and be like, oh, every single one of these films has a through line or thematic mm-hmm. elements that tie them all together. Mm-hmm. I think you can see a little of that in George Lucas going from THX to American Graffiti to Star Wars. Okay. We're, we're excluding the prequels because that that's Lucas many, many years later. <laughs> but I, I, I think Ryan Johnson's the clear extension of an outsider coming into this fold. Fair. And, and giving it their own spin at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That's fair. So, again, I think, like Rob said, I think David Lynch got scared away. I, I, I Considering what I know about Dino De Laurentiis as a, as a producer, I knew he was another one, too, that he was just a hawk. Uh, I, I know that you basically, he's another one, that, not that he told you what you could do, but you basically had to play within the sandbox that he gave you. Yeah. Uh, and I think anybody out there who's seen Dune can tell you that clearly this film didn't come to... Uh, the best possible end. I, I, <laughs> I like, I've, I've only seen Doom once. Where but... are my feelings? <laughs> Rob, Rob likes that. We'll insert that clip here a few times. That's going to be kind of like the, the running gag in this. The where are my feelings clip. Where are my feelings? <laughs> Go look Kyle, uh, Kyle McLaughlin and Patrick Stewart. Where are my feelings? I feel for no one. Kyle McLaughlin is a great, great actor. Especially when he's asking where his feelings are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear Lord. So, Rob, do you have anything else to add to this so far and what we've been kind of getting at? No, no. I think that, you know, maybe uh, as I expected, your understanding of what went on behind the scenes in the movie industry in terms of David Lynch's revenge of the Jedi, uh, I think you've answered it appropriately. Everything else I've planned is you know, kind of how I think the David Lynch movie would have played out. And I think, to ask you if there's anything else you have, that's where I want to go next. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. So I have to ask you, Zach, how do you want to frame this? Because we could talk about this in terms of how would David Lynch have handled what we do get in Return of the Jedi... Or we could ask the question, what would David Lynch have done with Return of the Jedi? And I have answers for both. But I want to know how you were kind of envisioning this discussion. Well, first and foremost, I, I guess we could, when Rob was promoting his uh, association with Anspiority Complex, the reason why we're talking about this was that on Cinemonides, we actually did, well, by the time you're hearing this, we have completed it for the most part. We did an entire series called Nope Vember. Nope Vember. Nope Vember. We had another name, but we couldn't use it because it would conjure a demon. Yeah, but we that's had a topic some, for another day. Oh my, that demon was so hard to get rid of the one time we summoned it, wasn't it? 
Well, yeah. Well, once we forgot to shut the window and he got in again. So. That's a bonus episode about how we handled the demon, right? <laughs> Something like that. Okay. So, good. but during November, we discussed all sorts of films that didn't get made or films that were taken away from their filmmakers. I think I think I've mentioned it a couple of times at the end of episodes. We talked about Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau that didn't get made, Doomed, the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie, jo- Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune. Tim Burton's The Death of Superman lives, what happened, all sorts of stuff like that. But no, that's kind of like the framework is like figuring out what these films would have looked like Mm -hmm. if they actually got made or at least hit mass audiences. To answer Rob's question, kind of how I imagine this would be is that I know there's a bunch of really stupid, like I think every, every three to four years you'll see some stupid video on YouTube or somebody, or I guess one of the movie bloggers gets bored and they'll dig up, oh, this is like, did you know David Lynch might have directed Return of the Jedi? This is what it look, might have looked like. So I know there's a couple people out there that have done like, like David Lynch movie mashups with Return of the Jedi where you'll see like James Woods coming out of like Vader's helmet at the end. They've you know, made like these... uh, trailers, right? Like fake trailers. Yeah. Or... But like, it's just, it, it's mashups. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate that because it doesn't give you any sort of like clue. It's just, you're taking footage and just combining it together. It's kind of like a Frankenstein's monster. This is a travesty. This shouldn't exist. <laughs> it's an abomination that should be burned. We don't want to do that here. We're not going to be like, oh, and at this point, Jack Nance shows up and he has weird poofy hair. And then, <laughs> and then Naomi Watts has amnesia. <laughs> just, just like, no, we're not going to do stuff like that. But she has a lightsaber. And then, and then, Darth Vader shows up, but but he's riding a lawnmower to get to his long lost brother. <laughs> like we don't want to do that. That's not the goal here. So what I was trying to envision is I that need to burn all of my notes right now. Unfortunately, <laughs> well, at least the Naomi Watts stuff because we all know Rob's uh, infatuation with Naomi Watts. If yeah, well, most me. of my notes was that she was going to wear jeans. <laughs> That's another weird one. Okay, all these cinematics references. I don't think uh, that's a Cinematis reference. I think that's a Rob reference. <laughs> but no, so what I was imagining for like, I'll let Rob go ahead first though, but it's kind of like at the very, we don't know what direction, like we don't have all the incarnation of Lucas's scripts for Return of the Jedi, but I think at the very least, one thing we know for certain that would have happened in this movie is that they would have saved Han Solo. Yes. That seems to have been a very a thing that Lucas fought for with all his producers during this was that Han Solo wasn't going to die. Mm-hmm. At least in this film, who knows what Lucas would have done in, in his his version of Episode Seven. But no, I think when looking at this, really the only thing I don't again, Rob can definitely go beyond these bounds if he so chooses. But how I kind of looked at it was how would David Lynch interpret the or. Uh, yeah, I guess it would be interpreted. How would he? What would his interpretation of rescuing Han Solo look like in the Star Wars universe? Okay, okay. I uh, I kind of took that the same way, but I was prepared for both angles in terms of what I think David Lynch would have done with the story that was presented to him. And I think, as Zach put it, you know, very first and foremost, that is saving Han Solo at the end of Empire. At the same time, I also have some thoughts on what David. Lynch would have done or how David Lynch would have handled what we do get in The Return of the Jedi. And I think, you know, both of those are are fair to a certain respect. But I agree with Zach with really 
that is the one kind of fixed aspect we get in Return of the Jedi. You have to save Han Solo. The first thing I want to bring up, I think, is yes, you have to save him. After you save him, I think David Lynch would have treated the carbonite poisoning, correct me if I'm wrong, Zach, if that's the name of it, I think David Lynch would have treated that much more meticulously. Because in The Return of the Jedi, we do get, yes, when you save Han Solo, it's just like, oh, I'm blind for a little bit, and then I'm fine. I think David Lynch would have cared much more about the effects of carbonite on Han Solo. What do you think? David Lynch is definitely interested in diseased people. In a way. Yeah, not I, I, I think I think not just diseased or inflicted people, but I think the effects of going through things, I think that is a trademark of David Lynch. And, you know, excuse me if this is, if this is you know, too sacrosanct or something, Zach, but I'm thinking of, you know, Dougie Jones from the Twin Peaks The Return. Like, you know, Kyle McGluckin went through the Black Lodge and he became this kind of void, empty shell. I think David Lynch would have treated going through a frozen period in Carbonite in somewhat of a same or similar detrimental manner. Oh, definitely. Now, in the process of saving him, I think the only comment I have is that Jabba's Palace, directed by David Lynch, would have been much more grotesque. I think that might be the best way to put it. Not scarier, not, you know more horrific, but much more grotesque. I think Jabba would have had a lot more saliva coming from him if it was David Lynch in the director's seat. I think that we would have got a lot more of the background characters, like of the Boar's Head Guards and the Squid Heads and the Reyes and the Spider Things, you know, and stuff like that. What do you think? Folks, he's, he's showing his cards and he's not a Star Wars fan. We got our B- B- Omar Monks... We have our good morning Yo, guards. Squidhead, Squidhead and Riggies. I had those action figures when I was a kid, and I loved them. They're still, to this day, my favorite action figures from Star Wars. Not a true Star Wars fan. He might be president of the Amelia Clark Fan Association, but you know what? Definitely really? Star having, Star, having Star Wars figures as a kid doesn't make me a true Star Wars fan? If that were true, everybody on the face of this earth would be a Star Wars. So what do I need to be a true Star Wars fan? I need to like Return of the Jedi? No, you, you, no, you need to dislike it more, then you'd be a real Star Wars fan. Okay, I need to dislike Return of the Jedi more, and I need to like The Last Jedi more. No, you need to hate. No, you need to hate that more, then... You know, I don't think I can hate that more. <laughs> yeah, Rob, Rob didn't like Last Jedi, folks. He's one of those. Mm, except uh, for the Luke Skywalker stuff. I love the Luke Skywalker scene at the end. That was great. That's that's weird because most people hate hate Luke Skywalker in that movie. But Last Jedi aside, no, but getting back to Return of the Jedi and what Rob was getting at, was that in the article that I was referencing earlier, and I'll I'll it'll be in the show notes, was that they in, in something that is present in all of david lynch's filmography is his emphasis and focus on texture and just how things feel and i definitely see a lot of that in the like as it exists right now the richard marquand 1983 return of the jedi you see a lot of that like you look at all the characters in that like whether it be the gamorian guards or just like when think about it when c-3po goes up to jabba's palace the the giant door and just taps on it 
and we see the giant like flashing bulb come out and start yeah. like talking to three PO. It's like wow, there's like, like you can see how that you can just kind of mentally understand how that thing works, how it kind of just like bobs and moves around, and it's like oh okay. And then when we see just like like Rob said, you know, he called it like the spider creature. It's called the Omar monks, and we Omar, see them kind of like walk around on their o- pincers. But Omar monks, but yes, like a the bee, yes. But Omar monks, there's an apostrophe in there too. I have the action figure for that. But I never knew what it was called, apparently. See? They were also referenced in Star Wars The Clone Wars, Rob. Remember that movie? Yeah. I remember that movie, but I don't remember that part. (laughs) They're referenced. They're not seen, but they're referenced. Okay. But Omar Monks. But Omar Monks. The more you know. What did that get me? $70 at a flea market? Will that get me $70 from Zach? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, but no, I think a lot of the scenes in the Jabba's palace would have been eerily similar to what David Lynch would have done. I think in the, like as I rewatch Jedi for this, mm-hmm. I think like when you get certain, clo- I think when we're first introduced to Bib Fortuna, I think yeah. we just see kind of like the way his teeth look and his his eyes yep. and all that. I think Jabba's palace is a very rich texture uh, sequence in the whole movie, okay. whether it be. Like think about all the different times that characters are introduced to Jabba for the first time and engage with him. I think Jabba's a very texture rich character. I think there's an, there's an infamous uh, uh, what's his name Endor Calrissian actor Diego Luna talking about like his <laughs> fa- like, infatuation with Jabba's textures and things like that. It's quite an interesting character, and uh, I don't know that texture of, of his skin is just something that obsesses me. Jabba. I've always wanted to touch him. I, like the texture of Yaba is something I, I need to discover. And then I'm obsessed with the texture of Yaba. You never dream about touching Yaba. I mean, it must be quite disgusting. I think a lot of what goes on during Jabba's palace is stuff that would be in the David Lynch wheelhouse. What I would say is different is that David Lynch likes things that are very slowly paced. Mm-hmm. Yo, absolutely. So one of the things that's referenced in the article is that like when 3PO and R2-D2 are going throughout Jabba's palace about to be put into servitude, I could definitely see that being a little bit more uh, spooky and macabre, where you ha- it's much more dimly lit, there's much more of a use of shadows, as opposed to where it's just like, oh... Like like three like they're all walking along and the guards just kind of like push like three PO forward like move along and then like one of the little tentacles comes out like a, a prison cell and tries yeah. to ensnare three PO until one of the guards comes and just kind of like smacks it away. I think there'd be it wouldn't be as cutesy. I think not a lot of what David Lynch does is cute. I think a lot of it is uh, meant to be unsettling. I think if we did have a point where three uh, PO and R two D two go throughout go through the bowels of Jabba's palace. It would be very dimly lit, but with very, not dimly lit as in like you can't see it, mm-hmm. but very strategic, limited use of lighting. Yeah. And then on top of that, I think it would be very slowly paced. It'd be much more, the ambiance would be uh, ex- like, uh, not, I guess, tension, borderline anxiety. Like what's going like, to, are these two real? Like what, what did Luke get these two into? If, yeah, if the, I, I, I think we would get much more of the droid torture yes. than we do get in this in what we have in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> it wouldn't be used for comedic relief. Yes. 
I, I don't know if the droid torture we get in Return of the Jedi is comedic relief. I didn't really take it that way. <laughs> well, it's comedic relief as in uh, the droid, obviously the droid has a name, uh, threatens 3PO and R2-D2. It's meant to be funny, like, oh, this is what, like, 3PO is just kind of freaking out at the idea of, like, what could, what could happen to him. It only adds more questions to my never-ending search to understand droids in the Star Wars, uni- <laughs> Star Wars universe, Zach. Yes, because the beep, the beep boop trash cans. How do you, how do you torture droids? How do you torture a machine that you created to serve you? They mentioned restraining bolts in this movie too. And Are you gonna go all. through that again? I I don't I don't think Zach wants me to go through all that no. again. So no, no. I do not. <laughs> beep boop. folks, go listen to the Cinemonies episode on the Clone Wars. It was another episode that we actually got ported over to the Knights of Vader podcast. So you want to I mean, hear Rob complain about the beep boop the, trash can? That's the introduction to it. There's much more to it. Like, what is the origin story of life in the Star Wars universe? Did like God on the fifth day create Adam and Eve, and on the sixth day he created he created like Gort beep boop trash can? And he taught Adam how to say Klaatu Barada Nikto, and then just like well, how did how did how did AI get to be something people needed to control, that other droids needed to control? That is ridiculous to me. See, folks, Rob is truly becoming a Star Wars fan now. He's dissecting <laughs> it and tearing it apart on grounds that it was never designed to be torn apart on. If if, if Episode Nine is not titled the droid episode Star Wars Episode Nine, the Droid Revolution, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> you already got that, Rob. It's called Solo. That was the droid revolution? Yeah, remember that with L3? Well, that was just like uh that was just like a one planet droid revolution. I'm talking the whole galaxy the droids rise up. There was a book based on that and it wasn't very good. I want to see the droids kill Ray and John Boyega. <laughs> I don't remember his name in the movie, but <laughs> Oh dear. Uh okay. Rob is definitely being excluded from the the speculation episodes on episode on episode nine. Don't count me in for Festivus, right? <laughs> no, no Festivus for Rob. My my grievances are too too strong. <laughs> Let the hate flow through me is what I always say every Festivus. <laughs> <laughs> I think what would have happened was that you would have had that, and I think a lot of the stuff also with Princess Leia okay. would have been considering that we would get later on with Isabella Rossellini in Blue Velvet and kind of what David Lynch does to her mm-hmm. between her and Dennis Hopper. I think you would, I think Leia would have been a little bit more not abused, but maybe battered. Sure. Like, like it, like this whole idea of putting her in the, this, the slave Leia costume. Yeah. What I guess not slave, Leia, but the slave costume would have been to be a little bit more uh, dehumanizing. It would have a little bit more of a, a physical and mental cost to her. Mm-hmm. Like she'd be, like she's clearly doing this on purpose, but there might be a reason why she's doing it in the sense of, in a weird way, she kind of enjoys the abuse, or there's something psychological about, like, oh, this woman, like, think about Princess Leia. Even though she's the, she's a hero of the rebellion, she keeps putting herself in these extremely dangerous situations mm-hmm. that might end to her, might lead to her death. Yeah, and maybe there's something psychological about the fact, or, or Lynch would explore that element where it's like, oh, maybe. Maybe this person who wants to fight darkness almost has to put themselves in this level of darkness because they want to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's elements. That's a really like, cool idea. 
Yeah, I think that that'd be definitely neat. Uh, I I don't think it would have flown in 1981, 82. <laughs> I think even now it wouldn't really fly. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly something provocative that. Again, that's the weird thing about this because I know there's an infamous story that Gary Kurtz kind of got annoyed with Lucas during the making of Return of the Jedi okay. because Lucas basically like kind of like let the toy makers into the creative process. Sure. And it's like oh, George, what are you doing? And George is like just opened up the checkbook and see and said, "See all these zeros? That's because of them. I'm going to let them <laughs> have a lot more control in this now because of it." Okay. And I don't see how toy makers would have been like George. We. we we can't have a 15 minute sequence where we explore this and Lucas would be like, no, 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 we can't. And basically <laughs> I, again, I, I think you have had a very, a very that cynical. Was great. That was a great impression, Zach. That was a great Jorge Lucas. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I, if anybody who listened to Cinemonity, it's been a while, but anytime Zach does any impression, it's Marge Simpson, but that was, I have not done a Marge, Marge Simpson impersonation in a while. I mean, I, when when Zach says Marge Simpson impersonation, he means his natural voice. So let's get that straight. <laughs> I have not done Marge in a while. That I was good. No, that was awesome, Zach. I like that Jorge Lucas. That was great. <laughs> good. Uh, <laughs> I think Lynch would have wanted to explore the themes behind these characters, which I think would have made for a much more psychologically satisfying finale to the Star mm-hmm. Wars saga. Like, these characters win at the end of the day, yet at what cost? And not like, oh, not in the sense of like, oh, Luke loses a hand, Leia, like, I I don't mean like physical things, but like, think about it. Leia had to lose her entire planet for this. Mm -hmm. Han Solo, like, I don't know, maybe, again, I I would imagine Lynch probably would have had a very different trajectory for Han Solo. I think, considering if you look at the original trilogy, Han Solo doesn't really lose anything. He's probably the only character in this that has like a net gain. <laughs> yeah. Like like Luke loses his family in the sense of Uncle Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. He has this now he has the burden of the fact that Darth Vader was his father. Uh, pre A New Hope, Luke's life was pretty much ignorant is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Yep. Leia, you know, Leia was a diplomat for all these years prior. But again, it cost her her planet. It kind of, like, what kind of toll this is going to have on the galaxy. And I think one of the things that would be the most interesting of this is that Han Solo just wouldn't be there. Like, you watch Return of the Jedi, and Han Solo's just there. Okay. He's really not a, a other than leading the assault on the, uh, the shield generator on yeah. Endor, he really doesn't have any sort of character arc because he's already he's kind of had the biggest er- character arc you can imagine in Empire, and you really can't do that again and even bigger and better in mm-hmm. the next chapter. Mm-hmm. So I think Lynch would I think one of the things Lynch would have definitely done if he was allowed to have any input on the script, it would have been uh, something needs to happen to Han Solo that that much like our other two characters of the of the, the main trio, he would have had to pay a price during all this. Whether that be the death of Chewbacca or or some effects from the carbonite. May, exactly. That yeah. that would be like, maybe considering that he needs his eyesight to pot maybe he would have gone blind, something like that, where uh it's weird because if you watch the beginning of Return of the Jedi, there's a lot of emphasis on Han Solo's lack of vision. Yes. And that kind of just dissipates by the time they, they, yeah. they rescue all of them. It's like, it's, oh, like, yeah, it's clearly quick. that's being set up. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't know. Like I think also when when like considering that Lucas knew knows how to absorb good ideas, there's a very good chance that when Lynch had these meetings with him, maybe Lynch made a couple comments about something that maybe bled into maybe one or two drafts of Jedi. And okay. so when you do have things like the eyesight comments, maybe that was an earlier draft that just kind of that's a good point melted away, and you still just see traces of it. No more, kind of like a watermark. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. So no, I think that like Rob said, I think the carbonite sickness and maybe something like it. There have been Han Solo would have had to have paid a price for willingly going into the carbonite to protect Princess Leia at the end of Empire. I think that's yeah. one thing he would have done. Definitely. That would have been a huge focus for sure. I did have an idea for possibly how Lynch would have started Return of the Jedi. And I think this is a two-parter because, one, I wanted to ask you what you think about this, Zach. Would Lynch have messed with the scrolling text? I would imagine that would have been off limits. Yes. So I guess that's my question. Is there any way, shape, or form... That Lynch could have been like, I want the text to scroll the other way or something like that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, again, I wonder because Lucas, or at least the image of him, is that Lucas was always kind of like the the rebel mm-hmm. amongst his peers. So maybe, but Lucas clearly likes the continuity of Star Wars. That's one of his favorite. Okay. Like, clearly, like looking what he did with the special editions. Sure. He loves that level of continuity where, like, oh, we have to go back and change Boba Fett's voice to make him sound like Tamora Morrison. Mm-hmm. It just couldn't be the fact that Boba Fett has, like, a voice modulator that has to disguise his voice. It's like, <laughs> nope, he has to sound like a clone trooper. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, again, we can't rationalize these things away. We need the continuity to be there so uh, people can say, oh, look, he sounds like this. Okay, okay. I think, I think Lucas is a stickler for continuity. I think that would have been a... Uh, no, you're not getting that. Okay, well then I guess that my, um, the thing that I wanted to talk about is my opinion on how David Lynch would have started the movie. And I don't really know if this is my opinion on how Lynch would have started the movie or how I would have, would have started the movie inspired by Lynch. But just hear me out, Zach. How about that? <laughs> um... So imagine that we get the the credit scroll, you know, just as we do. The Empire, you know, is bad. That whole thing. (laughs) And we get something that basically zooms in on a planet that is the birth of the Rancor. So maybe a baby Rancor kind of, you know, however that happens. I don't know if Star Wars has any mythology on, on the Rancor and how it, you know, kind of exists or what its living process is like. But I am imagining this movie starting with a baby Rancor. Maybe it goes through some trials or tribulations trying to survive in a jungle or uh, you know, a grassland-type experience. And for the first five minutes of this movie, we get to see how it kind of becomes part of Jabba's palace. And when the Rancor is huge, I want to see the growth pattern, of course. I want to see it tiny as a baby and huge as we see it in Return of the Jedi. Really, at maybe the six or seven minute mark of this movie, I'm thinking the Rancor, we just get to see the Rancor, you know, kind of looking at blackness. And its door opens up and Luke is dropped in front of it. And that's how the movie starts. 
with everything from the perspective of the Rancor until it has to face Luke, and Luke kills it. Does that make sense, Zach? Did I describe that appropriately? Yeah. What do you think about that? The only thing about that is, I think, because obviously that's an interpretation, I don't want to uh, dissect it, but (laughs) I think David Lynch... Uh, looking at his, his filmography as a whole, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to do this just looking at the first two films of his. Sure, but I don't think he would. I think that's an interesting thing about this is that I, even though David Lynch knows how to make very unique looking creatures or entities that are there, that are meant to be unworldly, mm-hmm. he doesn't like to focus on them. Like we're meant mm-hmm. to see. Okay. Uh, like, let's just say, for uh, for the sake of argument, let's pretend the Rancor looks the same way it does in the final product. Sure. I think Lynch would have used something like that much more sparingly. Okay. Like, 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 like let's say, like Rob said, like he fight. The beginning of the film starts with Rob. Uh, not Rob. The beginning of the film starts <laughs> with Luke fighting the Rancor. I don't know. I like it starting with me. Let's do that version. <laughs> let's do that version. Uh, Rob has to be born about how many years earlier? Nine years earlier? Then maybe Rob we could do that. Rob has a lightsaber. Let's start with it. Let's, just let's start, start with it. that. <laughs> oh dear lord! How scary of an idea, Rob with Rob with the uh, energy sword. Uh, uh, so I think when you start to film that way, Lynch would have been much more uh, uh, scarce with showing what creature Luke is fighting. And I think again, this is where the Lynch Lucas conflict would start to really you'd feel the friction because with Lucas it was I want to show off the creatures yeah, i and, want and the I, creatures to be the spotlight i think that's that's exactly where i i think i'm disagreeing with you is because i think that 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 would have had to play a role in that you know when we got the first two star wars movies you know in terms of the space creatures the effects that we got to see that would have had to continue and i don't see any reason why lynch if he directed the third film wouldn't have pushed hard on that I think that's totally reasonable. And do you mean in that he would have wanted his his creatures more obscure, or just kept them in the spotlight as much as they normally were in Star Wars? I think I think he would have he would have aligned them to be in the spotlight, you know, as normally as Star Wars was. And I'm I'm not saying that you know he would have made like as I described the the kind of the life cycle of the Rancor from its birth to his time in Jabba's palace, maybe he wouldn't have revealed a lot of its details. Maybe it would have been a little kind of like, uh, you know, hidden that this this tiny creature at the start turned into this big monster at the end or something. You know, I, I guess I, that's a fair point to say that, you know, my own idea of this isn't as completely as fleshed out as it would have to be for a, a film version. Well, I, I I agree with the concept of the, of the idea of uh, the the evolution of a monster. Mm-hmm. Yes, the game. Yeah, I, I think that's what I'm going for the most. That that's what I think Lynch would have latched onto is the evolution of a space creature as it comes to face one of our main characters. Well, I I agree with that, but considering that Lynch is much more again, this is looking at things like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway in Twin Peaks, The Return, in that Lynch does not like to focus on the monsters. Mm-hmm. Like, they're okay. meant to be there as fleeting glimpses. They're not... I, the whole What makes a monster scary is the fact that we never get a firm grasp on them. And okay. I think I, I think it would have been more interesting, like, like Rob said, I would rather have seen a Luke Rancor fight 
where we don't have a firm idea of what the Rancor monster is. It's like we see we considering that Java's Palace is a dingy uh, uh, monastery in the the deserts of Tatooine, which is very poorly lit to begin with, and you have Luke fighting this creature in the shadows that lives in the darkness. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be a really like cool idea, or to see some like really. Oh God, I don't know how I don't know how you would do this exactly, but sure. like think of something almost like Rosemary's Baby, where you just see like glowing yellow eyes, and you see like like very like just basic scary features, like stuff okay. like that, where it's like it really you see something not evil, but re- I guess really close to close to that, but you really you you don't have a, a, a anything clear to a grasp on it, but. Getting back to Rob's point of beginning with the evolution of kind of like evil, I I could considering that Lynch likes to focus on evil creatures that are more human mm-hmm. than than a beast beast like would be. I could see Lynch beginning the film very similarly to how it actually begins, where we see Darth Vader uh, uh, going to the second Death Star for the first time, or I don't know if that's the first time he's been there. I'm just assuming that it is. Sure. Um, I could see that the film maybe beginning a little bit earlier, where we see a it's something like kind of like what happened in Rogue One, where the film begins with like we have our dun 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 dun, dun and this and the stars slowly like or the camera pans down from the star field, and we see uh, like it looks like we're seeing uh, a bleached out image of us looking into a sun, and then as mm-hmm. we slowly like zoom out, we see we see like a giant. It's like what happened in Rogue One. We see like this giant cylindrical tube, and it's Vader in his tank soaking. We see this uh, limbless creature soaking in a tank, and we sl- see like the liquid drain out. Something like that, where it is that focus on yes. the the on evil. But it's the man-made evil. It's the, it's what man can be when it's so corrupted, mm-hmm. which is a, a hallmark of David Lynch's films, whether it be Dennis Hopper and Blue Velvet <laughs> or Mulholland Drive. The whole idea of you have uh, when humanity is corrupted. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be something Lynch would have latched on to. But okay. it, it depends. If Lucas didn't want to pursue that, Again, from what I gather, Lucas had this script, and I, I think it'd be really interesting to see what Lucas's. Um, all we know for certain by this point in time that Lucas had Wookies. <laughs> that's that. That's all we know. Okay. <laughs> because because Lynch says that like he showed me like concept art of Wookies, and it, oddly enough, this is one of the things that makes me really considering that the J.W. Rinsler book is considered the definitive text on all these films productions. Mm-hmm. The quote that we, you heard earlier with David Lynch saying about like, Oh, George showed me a bunch of pictures of Wookiees in the book. They have that exact quote in there. Cause I know they're referencing because it's word for word, the same, but where, when the quotes written out in the book and he says, Wookiees that is excised and in parenthetical, it says Ewoks. Mm. And that is in cl- the Rinsler book is definitively wrong here because in in the earliest drafts of Lucas's Jedi, he had or I guess Revenge of the Jedi, mm-hmm. he had them as Wookies. And what in the issue was it was cost prohibitive because Lucas could not afford to make hundreds of Wookie costumes. Ah. And so, and okay, this part now is my own speculation. 
But the reason why I've always, ever since learning that, my reason why for understanding why Lucas decided to do Ewoks than Wookiees was, let's just say, for example, in, in Jedi, there are 100 Ewok costumes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Think about it. An Ewok is half the size of a Wookiee. Probably so, less. Even less. You gave it, so it's even it's you get you can stretch your fabric in, yeah. in wardrobe dollars even further. So think about it. if one Wookiee costume cost a hundred dollars, like Rob said, you can make two, if not three, costumes for the same amount of money. So yeah. you can have more of these little characters running around. Definitely. Because I know in one of Lucas, I know in the early drafts of Jedi, it was going to be the final battle was going to take place on Kashyyyk. Oh. And, that, and that became uh, cost prohibitive for Lucas, so he changed it. And I think that's one of the weird things with the J.W. Rinsler book, where it's like, oh, well, clearly this is a mistake because at this time and place in 1980, 1981, it was Wookiees, not Ewoks mm-hmm. yet. Okay, that's so. I think it's weird that even in the in the book, considering this is the definitive text, there's not even like a little bookmark saying we don't know for certain. Sure, but until we until we see a shooting script that's date or not shooting script until we see a, a draft that's dated, we don't know for certain. But no, I think I think uh, one of the things that Lynch probably I agree with Rob. He would have probably started the film off with the evolution of evil or some sort of focus on the corruption of, of evil or the corruption of humanity thanks to evil. Yeah, I like your idea of Vader for sure. Um, yeah. But I, 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 for some reason, you know, I really like the idea of, you know, we follow some kind of, you know, minor character for the, from the beginning of the movie and then one of our major characters gets dropped in. That's an interesting idea as well to me. Yeah. So yeah, who knows? No, I think uh, th- there's 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 a lot of ways to look at this because it really we much like how we talked during November where we at least have a lot of we have some information depending on what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. With this Lynch, like I I cannot overstate this enough, folks. Uh, Lynch had no impact. Like he didn't work on this at all. Like yeah. he saw things and maybe reflected on what he saw in the immediate sense. He didn't think about them. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by think, not that he didn't think about them in the moment, but he didn't spend days or weeks being like, oh, this is like, or like, it's not like he submitted a draft. He just looked at a bunch of concept art and probably some, mo- not models for production, but maybe some design models. And exactly. be like, oh, okay. Something to give him an idea of what he'd be getting involved with. And whatever it was, it scared him off. To what degree we might never, not, eh, we might not never know. That that's kind of that's the the best hand we're dealt right now. Yeah, yeah, for real. So, Rob, what other th- do you have any other ideas about what this film could look like? So, you know, a lot of my ideas I think are focused on um, Jabba's palace. I think that's the most Lynchian thing in the film that we do get. Other than that, you know, we just have um, the Ewoks. Things like that, which, of course, we've already talked about, might have been uh, Wookiees. But no, no, overall, I think it's it's tough to say. This might be the toughest thing we've talked about in uh, relative to November uh, in, in terms of how it could have turned out. Because, it, as we've discussed, David Lynch kind of, you know, might have seen some concept art, but over time or a short amount of time just decided not to work on it. Oh, definitely, because David Lynch can do happy endings, mm-hmm. but 
it usually comes at a cost to the main characters. Yes. So it's it's okay. They they have to defeat the empire, but how do they get there? I don't know because David Lynch at that point had no expertise with special effects. Like this is this is before Dune, mm-hmm. and he more or less probably would have been hands off with that. And I think that's one of the like even looking at the current what we have for Return of the Jedi, and I think like I said earlier that the the space battle of the second death star is a much it feels like a different movie than the one we get with han and leia on endor and even luke and vader and the the emperor Mm -hmm. i think it feels like three separate three separate movies because you probably think about the people working on the special effects are their own people the people probably working on the endor stuff was probably if I had to guess, probably Richard Marquand, and then this stuff, because I know a couple of times they even show you in the Empire of Dreams documentary, Lucas states that he had to be on set like all day. Like, like he ne- like where with Empire Strikes Back, he was more hands off. He was much more of a a producer. Sure. This he was much more hands on with Jedi, mm-hmm. and they even say things that I, in, in the article that I, I'm referencing. It's Marquand makes comments saying like, "Oh, I'm not a flashy filmmaker, and I don't want the camera do a, doing crazy things." Okay. And as I watched it, I I can definitely see that things are filmed in that movie in a very conven- It's a very conventionally filmed movie. And what I mean by that, people say, "Okay, well, what's it, how are things filmed differently from Jedi to Empire mm-hmm. to Star Wars?" I think anybody who's a Star Wars fan knows that Star Wars, the first one, was saved in editing because it was just a mess. And Lucas didn't, didn't really – it was thanks to Marshall Lucas and I forgot the other two editors who won an Oscar that year for that film. That, that, that's why Star Wars is what it is because the first cut of Star Wars was a mess. And even with Empire, like one of my favorite shots in Empire or it's the uh, diversity of talent or the diversity of thought in the making sure. of Empire – is that during the Bespin lightsaber sequence or duel, you have right right before Luke gets his hand chopped off, where they're out on the I don't even know what you would call it. It's not a balcony. It's kind of like like the, I, I, there's, there's probably a name for it, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, I would have no idea either. <laughs> well, but most Star Wars fans would know what I'm, the, the 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 shots I'm talking about. Yeah, I think Luke, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, you have you have Luke. He starts fighting Darth. It's toward the end of the, the duel, and Luke's about to walk back. It's after he's been knocked out the window, and he's about to walk in uh, like a little pathway, a little like door. It's a doorway, more or less, an opening, and he gets forced out of it by Vader. That's really just kind of coming at. At this point, Vader's kind of just all right. No more toying with you. You have to be kind of put down, mm-hmm. and he's really coming after him. And we see them kind of going back and forth. And then the camera, like, it, it's kind of like a close up, like not close up, but it's really the camera's pulled in tight. And then we go back and we kind of see it from a distance. Then we kind of zoom in on the action. And then there's one point, again, I'm probably not doing it justice by describing it. And I'm probably not describing it as eloquently as I probably could, though. But we see this shot of it's kind of like it's the duels going on, but we're at a slight angle looking down at the action. Sure. And that's the sort of shot that even though it it's only maybe a second or two long, because the very next shot is of Luke kind of on the ground, his butt's on the ground, and it's when Vader has his lightsaber at his throat mm-hmm. and goes, don't let yourself be destroyed as Obi-Wan did. 
it takes place right before that that line of dialogue but it's a very unique camera angle because it's essentially a master shot because it's it's zoomed out but the camera's at a slight angle if anybody knows lucas lucas loves working through masters he does not like doing close-up coverage clearly this shot that I've, i'm highlighting was a, a Kurt, an irving kirshner shot that clearly Lucas liked because it was a master, but Kurt Irving Kirshner knew how to do that master, but do something slight to, to tweak it a little. Yeah. Richard Marquand, obviously Irving Kirshner was a mentor of Lucas, so Lucas mm-hmm. didn't probably have the gall to tell his mentor what he could and could not do making <laughs> this film. Yet uh, Marquand was clearly, again, like I said, nothing against him, but he was a shell. He did what he was told. Yeah. So if, if Marquand's admitting that he doesn't have any flair as a filmmaker... That puts him in a, a bad position to begin with. Never mind, he's working with someone who's not even going to be re- receptive to new ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason why, on a subliminal level, that Jedi does not resonate with people is that it's very conventionally shot. And considering what David Lynch does in things like Eraserhead, in, in, in Elephant Man to a lesser degree, Elephant Man's much more conventional and, and far from experimental, which is what one of Eraserhead's. Uh, Hallmarks is. Yeah. But I think that would have been, like Rob said, I think it would have been very interesting to see the camera work that Definitely. David Lynch would bring to a Star Wars film. Because at the time in the late 70s, you didn't have anything like this. And so you're taking something like Eraserhead, which again, we've already discussed, is a definition of, of niche midnight cult movie, which really mm-hmm. wasn't even a thing back then. And you're then elevating that sort of filmmaking technique to blockbuster level status yeah and i think that might be like one of those things that that's unfortunate where you don't ever you don't ever get that again and lucas was like again lucas as much as we make fun of him now for being a madman mm-hmm. he had the authority to do that and nobody could step in and tell him no mm-hmm. and that's kind of the disappointing thing with what eventually happened with marquan was that even though Lucas might have had a harder time reigning in Lynch, I think we would have gotten a much more memorable film. Okay. Visually, okay. visually memorable film at the very least. That's fair. That's fair. One of the only other things that I want to mention is that uh, that Job of the Hutt's Palace musical scene, I think I mentioned it in our diegetic music episode, but I certainly think David Lynch would have drawn on an, a, an artist of the times to perform that rather than a an alien, I guess, as David Lynch, uh, sorry, George Lucas relied on, or of course the movie relied on, I should say. But I, I cannot think of anything but David Bowie dressed as an alien singing something in Jabba the Hutt's Palace. <laughs> what do you think about that, Zach? Well, I think that's that's an interesting point you bring up because... I don't know. David Lynch definitely uh, knows what he likes when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I think he... I don't know if he would have done like a David Bowie. Maybe that's what he would have done. I, I don't know. He could have got far. Angelo Bottolamenti to dress up like an alien. I think they knew each other at that point. <laughs> well, maybe. that That's definitely something that, that could have happened. In the article... That I was uh, been referencing this entire time. It says there are several explanations as to why Lynch turned down Lucas's offer. Kazajan implied in either an interview conducted by 
John Philip Peacher in 1983 or in an interview conducted by J.W. Rinsler between 2011 and 12. And in parenthetical, it says the bibliography in Rinsler's The Making of Return of the Jedi doesn't make this clear. And parenthetical, mm -hmm. that Lynch turned down the offer because Dino De Laurentiis offered him Dune, an offer Lynch accepted. But more recently, Kazajan said at a Star Wars celebration convention in Anaheim that Lynch wasn't hired because, quote, he didn't want Johnny Williams to do the music and he didn't want Ben Burt, Academy Award winner, three times to do the sound, end quote. He added, that's the truth, and only you guys have heard it. The audience applauds, and the moderator adds, ha, 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 wow, that's incredible. Incredible as, yes, as in hard to believe, Katajin's original claim that Lynch weighed the pros and cons of Lucas's, officer, of Lucas's offer and shows Dune instead is more credible. But I think what Rob brought up is an interesting point, because considering how much emphasis, and that even to this day, if you look at David Lynch's most recent project, or film project, uh, Twin Peaks The Return, that David Lynch was like the sound editor and the um, like chief person in charge of the music in Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah, yeah. So I could very well believe that was a sticking point for David Lynch, where it was oh. like, okay, I want, I, if I can't have control over the visuals or if I can't have complete control over the script, I want to have control over the, the sounds of the film and considering how much emphasis Lynch puts on sound, I can imagine that being a deal breaker for him. That's a really good point. Considering that, God, all the sounds from Star Wars, I think Star Wars isn't what it would be if it wasn't for the sounds. Between mm -hmm. the sounds of lightsabers and Vader and the breathing and blasters yep. and, and laser bolts and the John Williams score, I think for, for David Lynch to come in and say, I want that stuff going and I'm going to replace it. <laughs> much like how Rob brought up the fact that like an opening crawl that goes in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would, considering that Lucas loves his continuity, never mind. I think Lucas also knows what made him successful. Yep. I think that's another thing where I can imagine that being a deal breaker for Lynch, where it's like, okay, if I can't control, like, Lucas, you have to give me something. I, I can't just sit there, basically be a, a director for hire. Why, why bother hiring me then? And I think that's why point. Mark one got hired. I think I, I think Rob's spot on with that. I think the music would have been something Lynch really would have insisted on. And I think probably the most radical departure from what we've ever seen or what would have or what we have. That would have been probably the furthest from what expected Star Wars canon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the only other thing I have is probably not Lynch related. Are you ready for that? Oh god! Another inferiority complex. Uh, plot? No, no. It, it's more about. Uh, it's more about this movie. Uh, it, I think I was trying to say it earlier, but we we went off on a tangent or something. But this this Star Wars movie was the first I watched since watching Solo. So I wanted to bring up. If, and you if were we severely could... disappointed there was not enough Amelia Clark in it. Well, I know. Well, I wish course. there was more Kira as well. <laughs> Well, of course, but I wanted to bring up the idea to Zach that, um, you know, I think you mentioned it, that you rewatched this movie for this recording as well. It's a little different to watch this movie with kind of the knowledge of Han Solo and Chewbacca and Lando Calrissian's relationship in the greater detail that I think I have now. Like, honestly, when I was rewatching Return of the Jedi and Lando is, you know, half into the the Sarlacc pit and blind Han Solo has to save him. It, it, it was a little, it was a little different. Do you, does that make sense that I had some information I've never really had before? 
I understand that. Yeah. I understand that, but I've over time I've trained myself to look at these films in a vacuum. Sure. Where it's funny, I think I've I think I've mentioned it a few times on here where it's like, oh, you look at these films now, and there's so many ways to look at them. There's so many different lenses. Yeah. Like think about it. Like when I was growing up with just the Phantom Menace and the original trilogy, it was like, what are the like at that point the idea of clone troopers was a giant mystery still. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is like the, like, what were the clone wars? It wasn't like, well, I know a lot of people talk. I, I think it's kind of overblown now. Like you'll see people like JJ Abrams and all these like current filmmakers who have some clout being like, Oh, well, I grew up. When I watched star Wars for the first time. I walked out of the theater in 1977. And my first question was, what were the clone wars? No, there's not a single person who watches star Wars. Yeah, first time as a child and the clone wars is the only thing that sticks with them walking out. Sorry, yeah. that that if you again that that's a, one of those things where when you've watched Star Wars four hundred times, whether it be in theaters or on home video, that's when you finally pick up on that. You, that's if, not the first thing you remember. If there's anything that you take from watching Star Wars the first time, A New Hope, I'm pretty sure it's the word nerf herder, right? No, that's not until Empire. That's not. Oh, I thought that was New Hope. Damn it! You mean scruffy, scruffy nerf herder? Yeah. That, that's See, Empire. That's how much that stuck with me. That See? I thought it was New Hope. <laughs> but uh, no, going looking at this film compared to Solo, um, I think the only thing that really kind of sticks out what Solo did, and I guess even things like Rogue One, in that you have the thing. I, I, I guess it's Empire. It's the Falcon. Because mm-hmm. uh, such a hallmark of that film is the Millennium Falcon, where it's like, yeah. oh, clearly, like the sa- I, the sounds are are deliberately done solo to make us think of of what happens in Empire. As, as I see it with Han Solo and Lando, is that they're, they're just they're two rivals that just occasionally rub shoulders, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and once they hit maturity, they realize they have to like, they're not bad people. Like like they've kind of outgrown being uh, dastardly criminals. Yeah, and yeah. they kind of put. It's kind of like two teenagers. You know, they're not teenagers in Solo, but by the events of Jedi, they've kind of put their big boy pants on. Yes, and they realize we can't be kids anymore. There's greater things at stake in the universe, and if we, if the Empire does go unchecked, no one's gonna be able to make a profit anymore in this galaxy, especially us. I think that is exactly. The uh, motto of Zach and I when we reformed our friendship to start these podcasts. <laughs> we have to stop someone or else to put an end to uh, uh, yeah. all the podcasts. Yeah, we had to put our petty differences aside to come together for the greater good. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but Rob, so you're saying is that you found this a little bit jarring now that you know a little bit more of the backstory behind Han Solo and Lando uh, maybe Calrissian? Not, maybe not jarring, but a little more interesting because I think that, you know, Star Wars is something uh, that I've always seen a little linear, I should say. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I thought it cool to see one of this, the one-off or spin-off movies, however you want to call them. You know, Rogue One, of course, was in your face. It was like, this is how it relates to the original trilogy. And of course I got that. But, you know, this was kind of something I didn't expect. Like when I rewatched Return of the Jedi, I was like, oh, I have a little bit more knowledge of maybe, you know, the relationship of these characters. And I thought that was intriguing. Cool to some extent. 
Oh yeah, I, I think the only uh, uh, bleeding through of Solo into this is at the end, not the end, but like right after the the mission briefing, and they're all about oh, to go yeah. to Endor, and Han Solo's like, "No, I want you to take her," and it's like, it's like, but no scratch. Yeah, and not a scratch. Like, you promised me now, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's obviously very clearly a jab to what he does to the Millennium Falcon in, in Solo. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, look, look at the condition of that thing as it lands on the uh, coaxium refining <laughs> platform. It's like, it's like that. That's the ha ha. Look at her. Han Solo doesn't want somebody else flying his ship now, now that the uh, boot's on the other foot. Uh, no, that's cute. Like I said, uh, I, I, again, not to bring up Solo, but no, Solo Solo's a fun movie. I think Solo's probably the least egregious Star Wars film ever made. All it's trying to do is, like, that poor film, after the, 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 the death it had to go through, all it wanted to do was entertain you. That's all that movie wanted. That movie didn't yeah. want to change your opinion on anything. It didn't want to insult you. It just wanted you to walk at it saying it was fun. And yet people still had to kind of stomp at the death and step on its head while it was drowning. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate, but, you know, I'll be the first to say on this podcast that, you know, an older Star Wars movie now made me think of a newer Star Wars movie. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, that's, well Di- Disney's doing something right if, it, if they're letting uh, positive things from their films bleed into the originals. <laughs> Oh, not my Disney. Hashtag not my Disney. Hashtag not my Star Wars. It's it's not ma, M-U-H, Star Wars. Mm, not my Disney. Gotcha. Yes, that's, that's, on, that's, that's on one of the Knights of Vader mugs. Not ma, my Star Wars. Ma, not ma, Disney. <laughs> Un- underneath it says unsubscribe zero out of five stars. Mm, okay, okay. Right on. Well, I think that was the last thing I had. Um, about this film, you know, like we said already, it's it's tough to discuss. This is, you know, one of the least we have the least information about what this movie could have been throughout the years. Absolutely. So, one final question before we wrap this discussion up, Rob. What snacks do we eat? No, wrong podcast. Thank God, <laughs> Thank God none of that nonsense. <laughs> but let's say David Lynch gets hired. He makes the film with some compromise, compromises. Sure. And it turns out not to be another Dune, but it, it's, it's more coherent, but it has a lot of that David Lynch flair in it. Mm-hmm. How do 1983 audiences respond? Considering that a lot of audiences felt burned, not, not super burned, but a lot of audiences weren't thrilled with Empire Strikes Back. Oh, okay. See, that's a really tough question because I, 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 I find it hard to believe that David Lynch would have given people a satisfying ending to the trilogy. I think that is one of the difficult uh, hurdles that I find when I think of David Lynch directing this movie. Because I think of audiences leaving and kind of going, you know, what? Like, maybe Darth Vader dies. Maybe it's ambiguous if if Luke dies, something like that. Uh, I really don't know. I think it would have changed the trajectory for Star Wars and David Lynch's career, and most likely, you know, kind of film in general at that point, if he did direct it. Is that a sufficient answer? Yes, it is a sufficient answer. Or at least, okay, I guess it's, okay. it's just, I thought you were going to say it, no. I thought you were going to berate me. Well, that's that, that, that's for the after show. <laughs> but I think David Lynch's career would have been the same 
Really? I think, I, I, think he'd be, I think it's the same thing that happens with Dune. He's given a lot of money. It fl- Not that it flops, but it's underwhelming. It, it doesn't do what it's intended to do. And I think he moves on. He goes back to his wheelhouse of the uh, seedy underbelly of Americana. I think he goes. I think whether he makes this or Dune, he goes right into Blue Velvet afterwards. So you're so you're thinking, regardless of this or Dune, we still get Lost Highway years later. I think we. I think his career unfolds the exact same way. Mm, I think Hollywood and David. I don't think you can reconcile Hollywood and David Lynch. That's a that's a really good point. That's that's a really fair point. Big budget filmmaking and David Lynch. Yeah, they they are almost you know two different massive entities of force conflicting with each other, and how they interacted is kind of just how they would ever interact. Exactly, and so when you do get these these unique blips of like Twin Peaks, where his taste of of. Oh, I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> how his uh, cinematic prowess aligns with what people like. Mm-hmm. You get that every once in a while, but it's not often. Yeah. As to where Star Wars goes after this, uh, I I think you do. I think it does hurt Star Wars. I think it would have definitely uh, spooked Lucas because I think you would have seen a, a drop off in the toys. I think, like Rob yeah. said, I don't think you get. I don't think you get the happy ending with Yub Nub Dun 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 Dun. Dun, 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 Squidhead, dun, dun. Squidhead, and Reese would have been so much more horrific. <laughs> that too. Uh, the toys would have been a lot more fun. I'll definitely say that. Toys would definitely be interesting. Yeah, you could put them next to the the yellow submarine toys you have, and they wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't know if it would do damage to Star Wars. This isn't like today, where if you have one. Uh, um, fumble it destroys everything okay but i do considering that it was gonna be the last one for a few years i think the happy ending of jedi and how considering how safe it plays it especially after an earlier chapter that kind of goes outside the boundaries of what people were expecting yeah very similar to what's going on right now with star wars what? i think you, you do need that conventional final chapter uh not for the sake of the story for a good mm-hmm. story but for the sake of uh, nailing down the future for the next crop of filmmakers to, to take the ball and run with it. Okay, okay. And, I, and that's what, and, and of course, we have to tie this to what's going on. It, can, it wouldn't be right on this podcast unless there's some level of prognostication as to what's going to happen with Star Wars. But it's, <laughs> it's reason number 312 as to why I'm so terrified of episode nine. Yes, but you, this but this whole episode is our reveal to say that we have insider information that David Lynch is going to direct episode nine, right? What? Is that, isn't that the reveal, Zach, that we have that info? I, I think we're going to pull a Mike Zero and we're going <laughs> to break some news. Uh, uh, quotation mark news. I can uh, David Lynch a fake Facebook post that says as much, right? <laughs> definitely. That means it's fact. As long as as long as it's in, it's on the internet, it's real. So we're breaking it here first, folks. JJ <laughs> Abrams is out. David Lynch is in directing episode nine. We are rectifying the mistake that was made thirty five plus years ago. David Lynch is in. He's going to throw John Williams out. I don't know who the sound designer is for the new Angelo Bottolamenti. Angelo Bottolamenti's coming in. 
Angelo Balamenti's coming in. Yeah. And Naomi Watts is coming in. She's going to be wearing jeans. Zach is so right. Kyle McLaughlin's going to be in there for good measure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to have Oh, we're gonna have them all. We're going to have and, them all. And the hook for this is going to be, forget, like, a CGI Princess Leia. We are going to have a CGI Jack Nance. <laughs> we're going to bring him back to life. We're going to get a scene with Jack Nance talking to Luke Skywalker in the Black Lodge. And he, Jack Nance is going to say, there's a fish in the percolator. It's going to be... It's going to be every nerd's wet dream. Am I right, Zach? <laughs> it's, it's, it's certainly going to be the dream of every Twin Peaks and Star Wars fan out there. Indeed. And there be there's going to be a VR experience probably next year. <laughs> oh, the amount of toys and the merchandise <laughs> and just the uh, ancillary media and products are going to be fantastic. I love it. I love it. I guess that's one thing I want – before we wrap this up, I want to ask our audience. How many of you out there out of our uh, – uh, many active listeners are Twin Peaks fans. I'm just curious if, if, if on, in the Facebook group on Twitter, drop us a line. And I'm just curious, how many of you are Twin Peaks fans? Do you like Twin Peaks? I would imagine most people have at least watched one or two episodes of it at this point. It's it, it's available if you want. Yeah, yeah. It. I think it's a cultural you know phenomenon to some extent that people mm, are aware of it. I'd best case is that i'd say a touchstone but i don't think it's a phenomenon i, I don't think twin peaks ever got okay, that okay you you let you let me be alive a few more years it'll be a phenomenon okay <laughs> rob will work on that he'll get back to us in a few months uh i try and so, talk about twin peaks to every party i go to <laughs> oh i don't doubt that at all all right rob you ready to wrap this up yeah, I think so. I think this was good. I think we did uh, the best that we possibly could do interpreting a movie that never was and we don't have a documentary for. No, we do not. You know, we're, we're going to make that documentary. Yeah, oh, based we're, on we're like gonna, three uh, paragraphs. We're going to Indiegogo some some funds out of you, out of you yes. suckers. I mean fans. <laughs> uh, here's the donation levels. $100 and above, you get a, uh, a thank you email that's auto-generated. For $1,000 and above, you get a thank you letter that's not personalized. And for a million dollars and above, you might get a DVD. But in reality, it's just a paper coaster that says DVD written on it. I like it. That's some levels I can get behind. <laughs> exactly, folks. I, th I think, you know what, that doesn't, that doesn't show contempt for your audience at all. Million dollars. Yeah, everybody, throw in that million dollars. That, just, that coaster is good. That DVD, that what? Whatever it is, it's going to be great. <laughs> and you put the coaster DVD in your DVD player, it breaks even even better. It burns, yeah. <laughs> oh dear! Now then, then you get the fire department involved. The insurance company has to get called. <laughs> oh dear! All right. So concludes this episode of the Knights of Vader, a Star Wars podcast. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. Just another reminder: I changed the Twitter group again because mm. I got mad about the Knights Vader. I didn't like. I think I've said it last week. I'll say it again. I don't like – I changed it. So I changed it to oh. – before it was KOV podcast. Now it's K0V podcast, the number oh. zero. So I don't have to change the business card at all that we made last year. So this it's K0V <laughs> podcast is another reminder. You're going to uh, need a whole new theme song, Zach. The, yes. the old theme song doesn't fit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> check out our facebook group type in knights of vader in the facebook and chances are you will find us there 
If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you're currently listening to us on. Thank you to Anspiriority Complex for providing our theme song. Check out their latest album and more from them in general in the show notes. For questions, comments, concerns, or snide remarks, contact me, Zach, on Twitter, at RogueKnight, K-N-I-T-E. And on the Cinemonities podcast, where we'll be talking about... I have to look it up. Uh, Is it so that Roger be, Corman's? Is it Doomed? Yeah, it probably. It, chances are we'll be talking about Doomed. The untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, which is part of November, which is the reason why you're, you heard this episode all along. And with that being said, where can people find you, Rob? They can find me on the internet through the Facebook page for An Inspiriority Complex. We're going to be advertising the diegetic music episode of Knights of Vader, because we love that. We're going to be advertising Cinemodities, because we love that. But most importantly, as Zach said, we're going to be advertising our upcoming second album, Semi-Perfect Yet Sublime. It's coming out on December 4th on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, our Bandcamp page. Check it out. If you want to hear some music from the person who's rambled nonsense at you for the last few hours. And uh, special alert, folks, on one of the tracks, Amelia Clark actually sings, so make sure to check that out. <laughs> I think that's going to be Zach's running joke, that I sound like Amelia Clark. I think that's what he's, he's, he's honing in on right here. <laughs> I don't know. I know you, we definitely know you like Amelia Clark. Right? We all know that the sound of Amelia Clark bothers you. So, <laughs> Yeah, everybody check out the second album just to see if there's a featuring Amelia Clark. Yes, that's good. That's good publicity. So that's how you hook people, folks. There's, there's, a hidden, there's a hidden Amelia Clark Easter egg in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, you're great, Zach. You're great. Amelia Clark is not great, but you're great. Okay, cool. At least I, at least I can beat Amelia Clark at something in life. I'm not really, it's not really a contest between her and I. She's clearly in the head, but you know what? I got one. All right, everybody. Have a good night. Bye. Say bye, Rob. Bye. Bye.